Welcome to episode 126 of District of Conservation. This is your host, Gabriella Hoffman. I have a very special interview for you all today. It gives me great excitement to say that after, I would say like months of chasing this interview request, I was finally able to land an interview, a coveted interview with the Environmental Protection Agency Administrator, Andrew Wheeler. So here's a little biography reading from the EPA website on Wheeler. So you guys get to kind of know a little bit of his history. So the EPA.gov website says this about Andrew Wheeler regarding his biography. On February 28th, 2019, the Senate confirmed Andrew Wheeler as the 15th administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. President Trump had announced his appointment as the acting EPA administrator on July 5th, 2018. He had previously been confirmed by the U.S. Senate as the EPA Deputy Administrator on April 12, 2018. And if you guys don't know this, he succeeded EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt when he left. Mr. Wheeler has dedicated his career to advancing sound environmental policies. He began his career during the George H.W. Bush administration as a special assistant in EPA's Pollution and Prevention and Toxics Office. He was a principal and the team leader of the Energy and Environment Practice Group at Fagre BD Consulting, as well as counsel at Fagre Baker Daniels Law Firm, where he practiced since 2009. He also served as the co-chair of the Energy and Natural Resources Industry Team across the entire firm. Prior to his work in, with the firm, Mr. Wheeler served for six years as the Majority Staff Director and Chief Counsel, as well as the Minority Staff Director of the Senate Committee on Environment and Public Works. Before his time at the full Senate EPW Committee, Mr. Wheeler served in a similar capacity for six years for the Subcommittee on Clean Air, Climate Change, Wetlands, and Nuclear Safety. Mr. Wheeler is the past chairman of the National Energy Resource Organization Nero and a Stennis Fellow. He is also an Eagle Scout. EPA Administrator Wheeler is from Fairfield, Ohio. He completed his law degree at Washington University in St. Louis, Wassel, his MBA at George Mason University, and his undergraduate work at Case Western Reserve University in English and Biology. And his staff informed me that he is an avid hiker, and he's going to talk about some of his favorite places that he traversed recently and throughout his tenure as EPA Administrator. And I think a lot of, like I said, misconceptions will be shed Perhaps people will reconsider maybe past misgivings they had about him and his agency. Maybe they'll appreciate some of the work. Maybe they may not come away. Maybe you may not come away with agreeing with what he has to say. But I think it's only fair that someone in his position can come onto a platform like mine, give a say, talk about kind of the differences and different strains of environmental philosophies that are starting to emerge. It's 50 years since the EPA was first created under Richard M. Nixon, President Richard M. Nixon. And the agency has navigated a lot of challenges. It's certainly not been a favorite of mine. Over the course of the last few years, I think the the agency has done a pretty okay job with trying to restore trust with different stakeholders all across the country. They even won some rare praise from outlets like Politico for their Superfund cleanups. You wouldn't see that much reported on the news, but Politico, which is no friend to the Trump administration, believe it or not, actually did praise some of their work in Superfund cleanups. And they've been pretty transparent about their work. I know they've attracted a lot of controversy with their WOTUS rules. 
NEPA and some other things, but to a lot of people who listen to this podcast, to people I work with, clients of mine, different interests out there, they care about these issues and they care about government not being uh, antagonist in their way of life, but allowing them to operate safely. So I think Administrator Wheeler is a fascinating guest. Like I said, you may not agree with everything he says, but he deserves to be heard. He deserves to be given fair consideration. And he offered some cautionary advice for what would be happening once he were to leave. The agency could take a really bad turn with what we're seeing with uh, promises from John Kerry, the incoming climate czar, just this whole push for this climate agenda, which doesn't benefit the climate nor the environment. It's more political in nature. And much more. Here is my exclusive interview with EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler. Let me know what you think. We are joined by Administrator Andrew Wheeler, who oversees the Environmental Protection Agency for a wide-ranging interview about the agency, what they've been doing, and much more. So thank you, Administrator Wheeler, for speaking with me. It's, it's really great to, to hear your thoughts. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on your show. Appreciate it. No problem. And for viewers and listeners out there, this will be on my podcast and also YouTube, and then we'll populate it to my town hall column shortly afterwards. But Administrator Wheeler, you guys are just coming off the heels of celebrating 50 years of the EPA. Could you speak to that and how the agency has come so far from half a century ago and what improvements have been made since its establishment? Sure. Thank you for for asking that because so, so often the accomplishments that we have achieved are ignored by the media. Um, they have a habit of only reporting bad news. They don't want to report any good news. Um, the agency did, we celebrate our 50th anniversary on December 2nd. And as part of that, we acknowledge the fact that air pollution is down 77%. The air today is 77% cleaner than it was in 1970. 7% of that happened under President Trump's watch. We've improved air quality 7% over the last, um, over the last four years. Actually, that's just for the first three. We don't have the data for 2020 yet. Um, the water quality, when EPA was founded in 1970, over 40% of the water systems across the country failed to meet basic health standards on a daily basis. Today, over 92% of all water systems meet all health-based standards every single day. It's not to say that the other 8% have bad water. It just means that occasionally they may trigger um, you know, an exceedance for one of our one of our um, pollutants, and we work with them to bring them quickly back into compliance. But our, land, our our air and our water are so much cleaner than it was in 1970. We made so much progress on the toxic sites around the country, the Superfund sites, and in later years the brownfield sites. We've cleaned up an enormous number of sites across the country, and it's it's really an achievement. Um, not just the EPA, the states, local governments, and individual citizens have contributed to cleaning up the environment. And the press just doesn't seem to want to cover that. So thank you for asking me that. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, and, and this is something I definitely want to ask you in terms of the policies you guys have been enacting, but I think in the last four years, you're probably familiar with free market environmentalism. That was previously a philosophy that was chided against, rejected in the halls of academia, and in public discourse, but now we kind of see this embrace of it, um, even by people who don't necessarily sh agree with necessarily what you guys are doing at the EPA, but we see different interests, even environmental organizations starting to slowly pick up on it. And since you and your past immediate pre uh, predecessor 
got into office about three, four years ago, combined efforts, uh, you guys have this policy of deregulation, which has been kind of negatively connotated in a way where they think that because you're deregulating, you're not caring for the environment. So how were you able to reconcile a policy of deregulation all the while keeping up environmental standards? Well, you know, we what we have done on the deregulatory side, um, we have deregulated. We saved the American taxpayer over $100 billion. But in many cases, when we deregulate, we replace the regulations um, with a newer regulation that updates the science, updates the, the um, standards. Um, we, what we're doing is we're doing away with two or three old regulations and replacing it with one. It's sort of cleaning house because what we've done as an agency over 50 years is piled regulation on top of regulation or guidance document on top of guidance document. And it's just been ignored as far as going back and people still have to comply with the older regulations and older guidance documents. Perfect example, we're moving forward on um, the heavy duty diesel truck emission standards. Um, it's, it's slowed down a little bit because um, during COVID this year, we haven't been able to do the field tests that we needed to do, but we've been working on this regulation. It's not required by law. It's not required by, um, by a court decision, but it makes sense because um, heavy duty diesel trucks will be the largest source of VOC emissions in cities by 2025. Um, and in doing that regulation though, we're taking three or four old regulations and guidance documents off the books it's going to make it easier for the um, equipment manufacturers to comply with one regulation. So it's 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 about um, you know it's about streamlining. It's about modernizing our regulations. It's instead of piling one on top of the other, it's looking at the science behind the regulations. A perfect example also is in the cafe standards. We you know we replaced our you know it's where I'm accused all the time of rolling back cafe. We didn't roll it back. We replaced it with a regulation that makes sense that will get almost as much CO2 benefit as the Obama regulation. What the Obama administration did was they set a pie in the sky standard that nobody could meet and it ratcheted it down each year. In 2017, only three auto companies were able to meet the Obama standard without having to cash in credits or pay fees or penalties. Those penalties were projected to get up to a billion dollars by 2025. That's a billion dollars that would have been, um, would, have, would have gone into the price of a new car. So instead of having the Obama regulation, and the, and the Obama regulation had all these off ramps where, you know, you could get credits if you, you know, for this action or for that action that had nothing to do with CO2 emissions. So what we did is we got rid of all those off ramps and we just focused on an achievable standard one and a half percent reduction in CO2 each year. That is something that the auto manufacturers can comply with, with technology. They don't have to do these phony um, trade-ins that uh, on credits that the Obama administration trumpeted, and they don't have to pay the penalties that the Obama administration was collecting. Um, and so that's gonna save the tax, it's gonna save the consumer money. It's gonna make the price of a car cheaper, but it's still gonna reduce CO2 emissions in the long run. So, you know, there's, there's ways of regulating smartly that use science and cost-benefit analysis that I think is really important for a regulatory agency. Yeah, and in the past administration, I recall uh, that they imposed a lot of different regulations that came at the cost of consumers, and not only consumers, but recreationists and consumptive users and private property interests and, and landowners, too. And mm -hmm. 
you guys helped kind of modernize and, and really tackle the WOTUS water issues. You got the, you, you helped uh, President Trump um, exit the Paris Climate Accords. You also were responsible for undoing that really disastrous clean power plan. And all the while, obviously lowering emissions and then simultaneously helping in, obviously with your counterparts at Department of Interior to help the country become energy independent, all the while seeing natural gas hydraulic fracking kind of soar to these great heights. So could you talk about those different policies and how you guys were still able to reduce emissions and then also simultaneously usher in America's energy independence? I'll try. That's that's that question. There's a, there are a lot of aspects there, but let let me give one one example that kind of kind of cuts to the to the chase here on the difference in political philosophies, um, and that's on the energy independence and, and what we saw over the last four years. The worst um, decision by any politician, the worst environmental decision by any politician, was Governor Cuomo in New York when he vetoed the natural gas pipeline, taking natural gas from the Marcellus Shell, which is the Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia natural gas plays into upstate New York and New England. He vetoed that um, under a clean water authority that really was a misuse of that authority. He said he was doing it because of climate change. It doesn't make any sense because it's it's causing upstate New York and New England to be more dependent upon Russian natural gas and natural gas imports. You know, I guess at this point, it's three years ago, you know, about the time he did this, uh, a tanker from Russia was in Boston Harbor downloading natural gas um, for New England. Um, Russia produces their natural gas in a horrible environmental manner. We produce our natural gas here in the most environmentally conscious manner of anywhere in the world. Our natural gas is producing the cleanest, um, using the, the best regulations and the cleanest standards of anywhere. So if you're going to stop using American natural gas and force New England and upstate New York to import natural gas, that is going to, um, that's, that's bad for the environment. And on the climate change side alone, um, the the carbon footprint of transporting natural gas from Russia to um, to New England is far greater than the environmental footprint, the CO2 footprint of transporting it from Pennsylvania to New England. So that was the worst environmental decision by a politician in the last four years. And I've said that multiple times. I've said that in front of um, a lot of mainstream reporters and nobody ever covers that because they don't want to criticize a democratic governor for making a bad environmental decision, but it was horrible. It was horrible for the environment. It was horrible for climate change. Yeah, there were certainly some interesting environmental stories that were not properly covered. I remember uh, prior to your administration coming in, the Gold King Mines bill, that was one of the most horrendous environmental disasters under a supposedly environmentally friendly administration. And it took uh, your immediate past uh, uh, predecessor to help clean that up. And uh, yeah, I don't think um, you or President Trump necessarily get the proper credit for advancing kind of a pro-environment, pro-conservation agenda. And why do you think that is? It's just uh, inconvenient for them to just be fair and acknowledge, despite the partisan labels that may be associated with you guys, or they're just not interested really in environmentalism and covering that in a fair light. 
So many, in my opinion, so many environmental reporters, so-called reporters are actually activists. They're not practicing journalistic standards. And you can look um, at, at the AP, you can look at the New York Times, some of their reporters, they're more activists than they are reporters. Um, under the Obama Biden administration, you had Go King Mine, which was an EPA contractor under their watch, polluted the, the, the rivers in Colorado. Um, and it, well, that got some attention. Can you imagine if that would have happened under my watch, what the press would have said or done? And take a look at Flint, Michigan. You know, Flint, Michigan happened under their watch. They sat on it, I believe, for over a year without doing anything. When we had a similar incident in New Jersey, we acted within 24 hours to ensure that the people in New Jersey got bottled water. And it didn't even actually make the press because we did our job. And I'm not, I'm not asking for the press to, to trumpet things like that, but they're just the difference in approach between how we acted immediately to solve that problem in New Jersey. And they sat on it in Flint, Michigan for over a year. And then they didn't do anything to change um, the EPA rules. We're updating the lead and copper rule, which is the rule that um, that re requires replacement of the lead pipes around the country. It hasn't been updated in over 30 years. The Obama Biden administration worked on it for eight years and never even proposed a rule. Our proposal went out last year and will be finalized before the end of this year. You know, another great example on the difference, but um, and this goes straight to the to Vice President Biden. You know, in 2009, he was in charge of the, um, the you know, the infrastructure, the, the stimulus package that Congress passed. And he went to Pennsylvania and stood on a bridge in Middleton, Pennsylvania, and said, this is a shovel-ready project. And then he found out while he was there, he's supposed to be cutting the ribbon for this shovel-ready project in Middleton, Pennsylvania. He found out, oh, it's actually not shovel-ready. It's not going to be ready for, you know, for shovels for months they didn't break ground for like eight or nine months after the vice president was there. And that was in the first year of their administration. And they did nothing for eight years to try to speed up the permitting because that was all government red tape on that shovel readiness. They didn't do anything for eight years on trying to speed up um, the, the government's permitting process. President Trump came in and he set a goal for all federal permits to be done within two years we updated the NEPA regulations for the first time in 50 years to require federal projects to review the environmental permits within two years. Now, the press went crazy over that, saying, how could you possibly review a permit in two years? And we built the Hoover Dam, I believe, in under three years. The Empire State Building was built in under a year. We can review an environmental permit within two years. And it's ridiculous to say otherwise. Um, so he saw the problem as a developer. He knew what the problem was with government permits. I mean, he believes in reviewing them and, and he doesn't tell us to approve them or, or he, doesn't, he doesn't tell us you must approve this permit. He says you have to do it, but you have to do it within a time frame. Um, and he, has, he stood up for the environment on the Bristol Bay in, in Alaska. Um, but, you know, that's, that, that's great. And, I, and I'm an outdoorsman. I, I'm, I'm an Eagle Scout. I still like to go hiking, camping. I was in, um, I was hiking in Glacier National Park this summer, a um, year and a half ago. And this is one of the, the, the best things I did as an EPA administrator. Um, we cleaned up um, at one of the old, um, one of the old nuclear facilities in Colorado and turned it over to the Fish and Wildlife. Um, it was a super fun site. It's now a National Wildlife Refuge. 
Um, I toured it two years ago. And so this is, this is really nice. And there are going to be hiking trails. I was there the week before it opened. So I went back six months later with some of the career EPA staff who worked on it. And we hiked, I think it was about a 10 mile hike around the, around the refuge. Um, I really enjoyed that. It was, it was great seeing what, uh, what could happen for an old Superfund site. We could return it into a valuable outdoor resource, resource for people to use and to use as hiking trails. Um, and it's just, that that's a great part of my job is being able to see the accomplishments when we turn a brownfield site. I was in um, Kalispell, Montana, and there is an old um, oil um, train depot that is now a brew pub. Um, and they were able to turn it into that by using some brownfields grant money to get the um, old oil site cleaned up. Um, I was in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania this past year where they where we they're using some EPA brownfields money to um, remove the asbestos and other contaminants in the old um, newspaper building. And it was an Art Deco style building that they're going to turn into a hotel um, that will really help the downtown community in, in Harrisburg. The same in Little Rock. I was in Little Rock last month, um, and they've used their Brownfields grants to redevelop their their downtown. I think that's really important to to use EPA resources like this. And one of the challenges we have, and one of the challenges that I laid out for the second term, um, is is the problem on community environmentalism and working um, with local governments, um, trying to trying to get all of our EPA programs to break down the silos. There was a, a mayor of Bitten Harbor, Michigan, who testified in front of the Senate Environment Committee when I was staff director in the late 90s, who complained that on the one hand, EPA was telling her on the Brownfields program, they came in and said, hey, you've got some, you've got some contaminated land. Your inner city is um, devastated. You can use some Brownfields money to attract new businesses into your downtown area. And the Clean Air Office came in and said, you're a non-attainment and you, can have, you can't have any new emissions. You can't increase your emissions. You can't get any new businesses to move here because you're a non-attainment. And she literally held up her arms and said, what am I supposed to do as a mayor? And one of the things that we have to do as a EPA is focus on addressing all the environmental problems in a community at the same time. One of the environmental problems that I've seen over my, my lifetime is that EPA regulations and the laws themselves have had uh, at times a perverse um, a, per, a perverse outcome in communities. And what, what I mean by this is that you have these old blighted neighborhoods, you have these blighted, these old contaminated facilities. People don't want to buy them, which is why the Brownfields program is so important. People don't want to invest money into something that they're gonna have to clean up. So what they do instead is they go outside the cities the former farmland, the, to um, green pastures, you know, green space, and they build new industrial facilities there. That's not an outcome that we should have. We shouldn't be encouraged. Our, our, our laws have encouraged that to occur. And I look at my home state of Ohio, my home county, where I've seen that, where um, the neighboring town, Hamilton, Ohio, you drive through the downtown area now where there used to be Mosler Safe Company. You used to have um, Fisher Body, a GM plant. Um, you, you have these former industrial sites that are, a lot of them are vacant lots. Um, and then right outside the town in the old um, farming community in the township, you have new industrial buildings that have been built over the last 20 years. Um, our environmental laws should not encourage that. We need to be focusing more on getting um, 
you know, reusing the former industrial sites for new industry, new manufacturing. You can't blame a company for not wanting to purchase a former industrial site if they're then responsible for the cleanup, the pollution at that site, which is why, you know, the Brownfields program has been around a little over 20 years and it's so important. Um, but we have to take a look at a lot of our laws. The, um, you know, Senator um, Gardner from Colorado, and, and I really hate to see him leave the Senate because he is such a forward thinking member of, of the Senate on environmental issues, environmental problems, and his good Samaritan legislation that got held up for partisan reasons to try to hurt his reelection. And it did. Um, if it had passed, if it, if it had been enacted into law, it would have gotten a lot of these former mining sites cleaned up around the country. And, and that's what we need to do is we need to encourage people to, to take ownership of these former contaminated sites, give them the resources they need to get them cleaned up so that we can reuse those properties instead of, um, instead of opening up current green spaces to, to industrial uses. Does that make sense? Yeah, I actually have seen um, some of the Surface Mining Act at work. I visited the Elkhart in Virginia about a year and a half ago, how that formerly active coal mine is now elk habitat and there's still well drilling over there. So I, I definitely see what you're, what you're saying in terms of repurposing it or making it suitable for industrial use or multiple uses again. But no, it makes perfect sense. But I, I have certainly seen that. And I think many people, especially my fellow writers and reporters, don't really see that you can have that, that these formerly used sites could be used for habitat, they could be used for um, job creation or industry, and still all the while uh, the surrounding area be healthy and happy. So I, I wish they would kind of get out of their little hovels and, and see that. So I, I've certainly seen, I know I know what it is, but yeah, a lot of people don't. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a few more things, if you don't mind. Um, are you guys going to be tackling anything relating to the endangerment finding with the time you have left at the agency? Um, I don't think so. Uh, th th that's, that's a huge issue. Um, you know, I, I do think, you know, as an administration, we've tried to focus a little bit more on, on cleaning up some of the uncertainties around the modeling for climate change. That certainly needs to happen. Um, and we've, we've started some of that in progress, and I, and I hope that continues. Um, you know, I'm concerned, you know, the, the administration, the Obama administration, EPA, almost solely focused on climate change. And it's important, and we've done, enough, we've done four regulations to address climate change. We've actually enacted more than any other administration ever. And our CAFE standard addresses climate change. Our um, ACE rule for the electric power sector, which is, um, so far has survived the court challenges. You know, the, the Obama administration's clean power plan, which went way beyond the confines of the Clean Air Act, was um, held up by the Supreme Court. You know, so we came in and we said, you know, that's that's outside the Clean Air Act, so we're going to put forward something that's reasonable that addresses climate from the utility sector. Um, you know, we have the CAFE standards. We also um, you know, address methane emissions from the natural gas sector, and for the first time ever, we proposed standards for aircraft. So um, we have addressed climate change. We've done it in a thoughtful manner that is, um, that is cost-effective. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm getting to that point where I'm trying to remember your question. I know where I'm going, but I want to make sure I answer where you, what you. That, what you, that seems fine. I, I understand. Finding. Yes. So I, I'm, and it goes back to actually what I've been hearing in the press about their, their knee jerk reaction to get back into the Paris Climate Accord. You know, the, the Paris Climate Accord, other countries aren't fulfilling their obligations. If Russia 
and China were not um, part, did not have to make um, the reductions, China in particular. Um, they're allowed to continue their emissions until 2030 before they even start to make any reductions. So, you know, it was a failed treaty. Um, it, it's, but then, you know, the problem is when we enter into agreements like that, we fulfill them. We fulfill our obligations. We always have as a country. And so President Trump was right to get out of it because we were the only ones taking it seriously. Uh, most other European countries, we've cut our, our CO2 emissions at a much faster rate than any of the other industrial countries. And we've reduced our CO2 emissions 12% since 2005. Um, France can't say that. Germany can't say that. None of the European countries can say that. So, you know, the, the, you know as I, and I reminded my counterparts when I went to the G7 environmental meetings, they would ask me about the Paris Climate Accord. I'd say, we're reducing our CO2 emissions faster than any of you are. We're taking it seriously. Um, but the, the Paris Climate Accord hurt U.S. jobs um, and hurt U.S. manufacturing. And return to that mindset is going to return to exporting jobs to countries like China. When you export U.S. jobs to China, not only do we lose those jobs, but the emissions increase. Because when China builds a, a new chemical plant, they don't build it to the same standards that we do. So, you know, there really is a, a, a double negative on this. It's not just, it doesn't just hurt the economy, but it hurts the worldwide environment. Because when we build the facilities here, you know, for the first time ever, um, over, we're not first time ever, first time in 30 years, the chemical industry is looking to build new chemical plants in the United States because of our deregulatory actions here. Those new chemical plants are state of the art and they reduce far, you know, they, you know, they produce far less emissions than anything being built in China or other countries. And that's where the jobs would go. And that's, um, that's where the emissions would increase. Mm -hmm. Do you see environmentalism taking kind of this more stewardship, uh, free market approach? Or are you worried that, let's say, after you leave the agency, uh, the policy dictates are going to kind of go back to this preservationist, uh, kind of stagnant and arguably anti-American standard? Are you worried about what could happen at the agency after you guys leave, after all these reforms have been made? Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of important work going on in the states. And there's, there's a lot of governors who are doing some important work in this area. I, you know, I, I don't know what a, what a future administration might do. Um, and, but what we've put in place, and what I've tried to put in place, for example, is on the transparency side. You know, just yesterday, we, we finalized our cost-benefit regulation for the Clean Air Act, and we're on the, on the verge of finalizing our science transparency regulation. Um, both of these are internal housekeeping procedural regulations, but what it does is it requires the agency to publicize and be in a transparent manner how we make our regulatory decisions. The cost-benefit rule, and I'm, I'm being attacked, I, I was, I'm not surprised I'm being attacked in the press or by environmental groups, but um, I'm surprised at what they're saying because all our cost-benefit rule does is require the agency to put in the preamble of future rulemakings, what are the costs and what are the benefits to follow a standardized um, method of, of identifying those costs and those benefits. I think the American public has a right to know what the costs and benefits are for each of our regulations. On the science transparency, I think the American public has a right to know what, what are the scientific studies that we're using to base our regulatory decisions. 
So, I, you know, I, and I, I've been, there's in the press and some of the environmental groups are saying, oh, these rules have to be overturned by, by, the, by the next administration right away. Um, you know, Senator Carper, the ranking member of the, of the Senate Environment Committee, put out a statement yesterday saying that this cost-benefit regulation must be overturned right away. I, I would, I think it's going to be interesting to see anybody come in and say, I want all decisions to be made in the proverbial smoke-filled back room. I don't want to tell the public why we're making our decisions. I don't want to tell the public what the costs are to regulation. I don't want to tell the public what the science is that we're using. I, I find that hard to believe that anybody coming into this job would want to close down the information and go back to the practices of 20, 30 years ago when decisions were made from on high and the American public just had to, you know, had to follow the regulation. I think it's important to be transparent, and that's why we've opened up the agency to be more transparent. But at the same time, we've also implemented across the agency the lean management system, also called the Toyota system, which puts decision-making uh, more at the, at the mid-level manager level. And it gives them the tools to make decisions. And what, um, what we've seen by implementing this, and so far 83% of our staff have been trained in this, is we've seen an incredible reduction in the backlog in permits um, and the backlog on the water side, for example. We inherited a backlog of over 100, I think it was 112. Um, they're called TMDLs, Total Daily uh, Maximum Load Permits from the states. Um, we, we reduced that backlog down to one using the lane management system, a 99% improvement. And we've gotten our backlog um, of those permits more than um, six months down to 54%. We've implemented it for our enforcement inspection reports. It used to take, I believe it was somewhere around nine to 12 months to issue an inspection report to a facility. We got that down for the, for the most part to 30 days. Um, so it, it would be, I think it would be hard for somebody to come in and say, I want to take longer to do permits. I want to take longer to approve state, um, you know, state implementation plans. I want to take longer to give facilities a report on what they're doing wrong. So across the board, we've improved the way the agency functions. It's more efficient and more effective than it's ever been. Um, and we're more transparent than we've ever been. So, you know, I, I hope the American public, um, you know, is vocal about, about, their need, about their need to have the information from the agency and um, to get these permits done. You, know, you shouldn't have to wait years to get a permit from the federal government to do a small project. You know, you shouldn't have to wait years. A state shouldn't have to wait years. Um, some of our state implementation plans on the Clean Air Act were sitting here at the agency for 30 years, and not acted on. Um, we've cleaned up the backlog there as well. So we've made incredible progress. And I think it'd be very difficult. Um, and, I mean, there, and I'm sure there'll be people in the press and environmental groups that are just be silent if these things are overturned. But I hope the American public appreciates and understands the transparency that we've given to this agency for the first time in 50 years and the efficiencies that we've put in place. Because that benefits everyone and that it benefits the environment. Because when decisions are made about it, putting on new pollution control equipment in 30 days instead of six, six months, then that's, you know, that's equipment that can be installed and um, operating much faster than if they waited, um, you know, if you draw out the, the approval process. So, you know, I, I think we've made a lot of changes here that um, are important for the American public and important for the environment. 
Yeah, I think people will be wishing for that transparency, especially if it were to be undone. And some of us in the press do appreciate uh, that transparency and that accessibility that the agency has given. And I think uh, most people outside the Acela corridor, I've spoken to different people across the country who've said they feel relieved to have had at least someone listen to their concerns, especially when it comes to water rights and private property rights and having greater relationships with government um, and obviously allowing them to be able to have their business if they run a cattle ranching operation or farming or whatever, um, and have the government not be at odds with them, more so work in concert with them. But no, uh, that that's really good to know. But uh, Administrator Wheeler, while I still have you, could you direct people to where they can connect with you and the agency and learn more about all the different reforms and recent actions that the department has taken? Sure. So it's our EPA website, epa.gov. Um, and it's it's very user friendly. Um, you can go to that and find out the, the latest news from the agency. We also have um, a Twitter account. Um, we also just recently got on Parler. We've been criticized for that. Um, I, you know, I, I said it's a new social media outlet. It's new people. We need to reach as many audiences as possible. We have a Facebook page as well. Um, be careful you don't go to the to the to the uh, mock ones by by um, you know make sure you go to the verified sites. Um, but we do, we do have epa.gov, and then you can reach our social media platforms through our website. Um, also, um, you know, something else that I think is important for, for all your, your viewers and listeners to know is what we've done on coronavirus. Um, EPA approves the disinfectants that are used to clean surfaces. Thank your, your bleach wipes, your aerosol sprays. Those are all approved by EPA on whether or not they're effective against coronavirus. We have on the epa.gov, it's actually epa.gov, backslash coronavirus is a searchable database. So, and we have over 500 products approved at this point. So if, if your listeners go to the store to make sure that they want to, to, and I'm thinking about this for the upcoming flu season and if coronavirus gets worse during the winter before the vaccine is widely available, you can um, see which products are effective against coronavirus so that you're using the right product to clean your homes or your offices or your schools. And that is epa.gov backslash coronavirus. That's valuable information. And I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to speak with me. I know I've been trying to get in in touch with your agency for a while, and I really appreciate your time and and your expertise and sharing uh, what has been happening there, especially over the course of the last few years. So thank you, Administrator Wheeler, for- for Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. And I really appreciate your insightful questions. Thank you very much. I hope I delivered on bringing you all a very interesting interview with a high-profile administration official. Let me know your thoughts on it. You can tell me by leaving reviews what you think of my interview with Administrator Wheeler, what you've been thinking about the different episodes here on the podcast. I'm all ears. Share your feedback. If you are enjoying the podcast, like I have mentioned in past episodes, make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat or a guest announcement. I should be having some more high-level administration officials rejoining the podcast or speaking with me in a greater context. I should be interviewing some more people across the hunting, fishing, and shooting sports industry while we still have 2020. I'll be doing some monologues. I think tomorrow I'm going to do some topical discussions about some interesting things that have happened. And we're going to talk about the different generalities about conservation versus preservation, multiple use versus public use, and all these different issues that should be arising. I'll keep tabs on 
any of the nominees that are coming out for the incoming Biden administration. It's important to know where they truly stand on the issues and how that'll affect sportsmen and women and ranchers and cattlemen and farmers, because there's a lot to worry about with this income. We're going to be a very interesting dynamic program, I think, going forward. And I, I know the purpose of the show and more people have encouraged me to continue doing this. So we're going to keep at it with this podcast. We're not going to be afraid to challenge the conventional wisdom, challenge norms, challenge thinking, and we're going to bring on guests and we're going to push the narrative that you can be a conservative and a conservationist. And even if you're not of that political thinking, and I am, and if you're not, that's perfectly fine, but you can get to know kind of that train of thought. You can get to know what true conservation is beyond politics because sometimes I fall prey to wanting to be partisan, but I know in certain subjects you can't be but stay tuned. Thank you for listening. And let me know what you think of this podcast. Share your thoughts with me on social media.